this special episode of the Burn Foreman Podcast in honor of Black History Month. We're glad you decided to download this episode and take the time to acknowledge the importance of this month. My name is Adam Artiglare, and I'm a lawyer and a partner with Burn Foreman's office in Greenville, South Carolina. I am a dirt lawyer. In my daily practice, I help my clients buy and sell real estate. I help my bank clients make loans, and I help my business clients borrow money. My ultimate goal is to help provide my clients with an excellent return on their investment. For those of you who are new to Burn Foreman, we are a 100-year-old full-service law firm with 360 attorneys in eight states and 19 offices throughout the Southeast. One of the best things about Burn Foreman is its support and celebration of diversity, which is one of the reasons why we're here today. If you're listening to me now, you at least have some interest in the law and in black history. But you may be also be asking yourself, what can a lawyer, or a law firm for that matter, contribute to the historical narrative and black experience? Well, the law of this country, and the law of the colonies that existed before our country's founding, is, was, and continues to be the most influential facet of the African American experience. The laws of the colonies, in the early United States dictated how African Americans were enslaved, held, sold, managed, and punished. The laws of the post-Civil War United States created a system of repression that reverberates throughout our modern society today. The laws of the United States form the undercurrents of our society today. These undercurrents continue to drag people down simply because where they were born who their parents are, the color of their skin, and the circumstances to which they were born. The laws of the United States have also been a force for good. Legal decisions and laws passed to protect civil rights have helped stem the tide that has washed over African Americans for so many years. Even so, it hasn't been enough. There's still much more work to be done. The basis of that work will, again, be grounded in the law. The law has been used as a weapon against African American people, but it has also been an engine for change. We must continue to fine-tune the law so that those who have been held down for so long can now rise and enjoy all that our society can provide. Today, we're going to talk about one of my favorite clients. We are honored to be the attorneys for the George and Rosina Shaw Center for Housing and Economic Growth. The Shaw Center is a local nonprofit formed by the citizens of Clemson, South Carolina in 2021. It is an effort started by the African American community and its diverse and strong board has laid out a clear and honorable vision. The organization was founded with several key purposes. It is the aim of the organization to cultivate diversity, inclusion, and collaboration in the Clemson community. The organization also was founded to create programs, provide services, and promote the health, safety, housing equity, and economic stability of those living in the Clemson community. Of course, these goals will provide a significant benefit to those underserved communities and individuals who have not enjoyed economic growth on par with other neighborhoods and community members. To provide some historical background, the Shaw Homestead was the heart of the African-American community 
in what was then known as Calhoun, South Carolina, and is now the municipality of Clemson, South Carolina. If you've never visited Clemson, the community is nestled between the large Clemson University and Lake Hartwell. It is truly a university town. Clemson University sits on what was formerly known as Fort Hill Plantation. Fort Hill Plantation was the home of John C. Calhoun when he inherited more than 1,300 acres of land from his mother-in-law. As a quick aside, the man honored with the name of the town and who obviously was able to obtain wealth, prestige, and the ability to achieve some of the highest offices and honors of the United States and South Carolina, received a large portion of his wealth from a woman. It is likely that John C. Calhoun held the same beliefs that prevailed at the, at the time about women. It is also equally likely that he would have found it ludicrous that a woman would have the aptitude to make a reasoned decision and vote for the offices that he himself held. Politics was the realm of a man, yet he was perfectly willing to accept this wealth on inheritance from a mere woman. He then continued to build his wealth not by the sweat of his own brow, but on the backs of others, his slaves. I find the dichotomy and the clear inability to understand the contradictions of this man's life fascinating. It is dangerous, of course, to superimpose the values of modern times over the times of John C. Calhoun. Yet, for those who still consider John C. Calhoun a self-made man of principle, also has to consider the complete picture of the man. This is not a story about John C. Calhoun, though. Back to George and Rosina Shaw and the home that they were able to build for themselves. With sheer determination and hard work in the face of adversity, the Shaws grew their home, their wealth, and their property. The Shaw homestead was eight acres of grassy hillside, including a grocery store, a garden, a makeshift football field, and a home. This property bordered on the road and rail line into Calhoun. Now that the Shaws had built their home, the question then became, would they be able to pass along their wealth that they had grown to future generations? From the Civil War until now, the general rule is that African Americans have been prevented from growing wealth and then passing that wealth along to future generations. There are, of course, always exceptions to the rule, but when we look at poverty in the African-American community, when we look at the neighborhoods that have been allowed to degrade, when we look at the neighborhoods that are all black or the neighborhoods that are all white, we have to ask, first, why did this happen? Second, how did it happen? And third, how do we fix it? So, addressing the broad subject, subject of generational wealth, the main factor is always real estate. What is the single largest investment for most Americans? What is your single largest investment? Probably real estate or your home. A home provides so many avenues for wealth. The ability to borrow money, the creation and growth of credit, a tangible item to pass down from one generation to the next. A home and real estate is how American wealth is created. It is the ticket for upward mobility. It is the core of the middle class. So, if you have a group of individuals who you'd like to keep subjugated, what is one way to stop them from climbing the ladder to your level? Well, 
You prevent them from obtaining wealth and from passing that wealth from one generation to the next. You put up roadblocks that prevent them from obtaining a loan. You depress the price of homes that they live in and the real estate they own by a tool called redlining. You prevent them from moving from one location to another. Redlining, if you haven't heard of it before, was a clever tactic that was used throughout the United States. Using terms such as residential security and other subtle and not so subtle tactics, banks, mortgage companies, community leaders, local governments, and developers prevented African Americans from borrowing money and prevented them from moving from, to other neighborhoods. Also, they prevented them from borrowing money to improve their own homes and their own neighborhoods. To be clear, this was not a situation where you had old rundown houses and old rundown neighborhoods that a bank simply thought would be a loan risk. This was, in fact, a stated blanket policy where you would have two neighborhoods of similar age, similar character, and similar economics. The only determining factor for the improvement of the neighborhood or for providing a loan to an individual was the predominant race of the neighborhood. If you were in a black neighborhood, you wouldn't get the loan. If you were in a white neighborhood, you would. Some of the not-so-subtle tactics are the neighborhood and community title restrictions that literally stated that those of certain races could not live in certain neighborhoods. My own property in its chain of title from a deed from when my neighborhood was developed states that no one of African descent may occupy the residence. Again, this type of open restriction occurred throughout the United States. No part of the United States was immune even after the practice was declared unconstitutional in 1948. In reaction to this, I've heard many people say, well, the past is the past, and since that such activities are illegal now, it no longer is a factor today. I cannot disagree more. This is the attitude that ignores the festering wound. The laws, the redlining, the restrictive covenants, the repression is not a switch that can simply be turned on and off. It lingers. It creates that undercurrent that drags people down. It prevents the economic growth that is needed for all of our communities to thrive. It matters. It matters more now because we have the ability, the will, the knowledge, and the momentum to do something about it. So, what can we do? We can provide the resources to our African American communities and our underserved communities that will help them protect their wealth protect their homes, will allow them to invest in their community, to borrow money, to improve their homes, and to create an environment where their children and grandchildren will want to stay there. These resources include access to lawyers who can draft the wills and estate plans and deeds, lawyers who can identify heirs, lawyers who can solve title issues, lawyers who could take a property through probate, and lawyers who could help settle a boundary dispute. Now, for those in Clemson, there is a new and growing issue. As mentioned before, the city of Clemson is nestled between a major university and a very large lake. There is less and less land. Where are the students going to stay? 
That is a good thing in some ways as it increases property values and wealth. The problem comes where predatory land speculators take advantage of title issues, family squabbles, and uncertain land boundaries to rob African American residents of their homes and their communities. I've seen it time and again. The long-standing communities of black residents in Clemson are facing annihilation. Many simply say, well, if they want to make some money, that's their choice. They can sell their land if they want to. The problem is, there is no choice in the matter. Those seeking to take the land are using tactics to divide neighborhoods, and they are exploiting the problems caused by the lack of clear ownership, clear property lines, and clear allegiances to deprive the communities of any choice in the matter. It is time to give these neighbors a voice. It is time to respect the legacy of the Shaws and the many long-standing African-American families in the Clemson community by allowing them to decide their own destiny. With the assistance of the Shaw Center, the African-American residents in Clemson will finally be able to grow their wealth, keep their homes, and hold on to the place in their own community. That is why Byrne Foreman supports the George and Rosina Shaw Center for Housing and Economic Growth, and it is why you should too. If you want to know more about the slaves of the Fort Hill Plantation and the black experience at Clemson, I recommend that you read the excellent book, Call My Name Clemson by Rhonda Thomas. For more information on how you can give to the Shaw Center, please contact me through Byrne Foreman's website, burr.com. And to shamelessly borrow from one of my favorite podcasters, Stephen West, thank you for listening. Thank you for wanting to know more today than you did yesterday. And most important, thank you for helping us celebrate Black History Month.